Um, if you'll turn in your Bible, take your Bible this morning and go to 1 Peter. And we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 13 through chapter 3, verse 7. So as many of you know, Pastor Chris is not here this week. He is uh, out seeing his family, seeing his mother, celebrating her 80th birthday. So it's a special time to see her and all of his siblings um, that live all over across the America. So uh, it's great that he could get away, and uh, it's an honor and privilege today to bring the word to you. And so if you'll uh, go to prayer with me here, let's just go before the Lord. Uh, Father, we come this morning um, in, need of, in need of you, in need of you filling us uh, with your spirit, with comfort and peace. And uh, as Pastor Ken said earlier, uh, most likely we have come this morning probably with something in our lives that we need to give over to you, whether it be burdens from our family, Lord, uh, raising our kids and our marriage, or at work, or just financial stress, or just, just Lord, the, the fact that there's evil all around us in this world. Um, and God, we... We can't escape it. There's nothing we can do to fix the brokenness of humanity. And so that alone is a burden that we come with this morning. Uh, Lord, but we've come to uh, acknowledge our need for you. We've come to lay all of it at your feet. And we've come to look at your word. And I pray that, really, my prayer is simple, Lord. Um, I pray that your name would be great today. That through the giving of your word, that we would make much of you. And we would recognize, Lord, our place before you. Uh, thank you, Jesus, for meeting us where we're at. And thank you for using the power of your word to change us into who you want us to be. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through chapter 3 through verse 7. Uh, I want to read this for you. There's a lot to read. Um, so if you'll follow along, we'll read through this, and we'll kind of break down the heart of what Peter is getting at. And uh, this morning, this message is, it's kind of a hard message, to be honest with you, um, but I really believe it's, it's the normal life that God has called us to, and you'll see what I mean as we get into it. So let's start in verse 13. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But if when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Verse 25, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, while they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Verse 4, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good, and you do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So there's a lot of things going on this morning. There's a lot of fun potential topics that we could spend our time talking about, and guess what? I'm not going to talk about some of those, particularly the last two verses of chapter 3. And my wife said, ah, good decision, Derek. Um, No, the reason why I'm not going to get bogged down into that is because I don't think that's the heart of this passage. And so I want to break down for you what I believe Peter's really getting at the driving theme of what he wants us to to walk away with from this passage. I believe Peter is writing this, and and he's writing essentially what uh, some scholars call a household code. So he's addressing specific relationships um, that these Christians who are suffering, they're going through some levels of persecution, whether it be physical, whether it be um, ill-content towards governing authorities or other, other people in society, And he's basically saying, within the context of these relationships, this is how I want you to respond to the suffering that you're going through. So he gives us really three different relationships that are going on. He said, first of all, he says, subject yourself in regards to the emperor and the governing authorities. He said, that's that's the first thing that you're supposed to do. Live in submission to those authorities that God has placed over you. He, He addresses a relationship between slaves to masters. And he addresses a relationship between wives to husbands and husbands to wives. Uh, In all this, he says, do what is right. And what that really means is these these next five things. Live as servants of God, honor everyone, love the other believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. So honor the governing authorities that God has placed over you. Then he says, if you look at verse, uh, let's go back to verse 21. So he says all of this, and then in verse 21 he says, for... To this you have been called, because Christ also excuse me, suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So I believe that verses 21 through 23 is really the heart of what Peter's getting across. This morning, that's what we're going to focus our attention on. All the suffering that was going on among the Christians' lives in different relationships that he describes, really what he's getting at is, 
How are you to get through this? How are you to endure this? What are you to do in order to survive the different levels of suffering that you're going through? And so, of course, he points to the one example, the only example that's really going to give us any hope in this broken world, and it's the example of Christ. It's interesting, though, he says, um, Jesus gave us this example. And that word, really, if you look at it in the Greek, it means a pattern. Uh, one writer puts it this way. He says, the term example is not simply that it's a, uh, of a good example that one uh, is exhorted to copy, but the pattern of letters that a schoolchild must carefully trace if he or she is ever to learn to write. So what he's saying is, this word, the intent of what this word carries with it, it's like when you're in kindergarten or preschool. I don't remember when we learned to, to write. A long, long time ago. I'm 41, so it seems like a long, long time ago to me. But you remember you'd get that piece of paper and it had the dotted letters. You know, and that was the idea that you'd trace those letters and you'd trace them over and over and over and over and over until you understood the pattern and you, you gained a muscle memory from your brain to your hand so that you knew how to make an A without really even thinking about it. Um, I remember when my kids first came home uh, from kindergarten and they could write their name. And it still looked like some form of alien hieroglyphic, you know, but, but you could kind of make out what the letters were. And now all three of my kids are at a place where they can write their name very neatly. They don't teach cursive in elementary school anymore, uh, so they can't write in cursive, but that's okay. They can still get an education without cursive, right? Hopefully. But now they can write it clearly. It's a pattern that they've learned and they've understood. That's exactly what Peter's saying. He says, as Jesus has left this example... It's a pattern that he wants you to learn, a pattern of learning how to suffer. So I don't like that. That doesn't sit well with my American mind of um, being secure, being a self-made person, having comfort, being protected. But this is what he's saying. He says in verse 21, For to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you a pattern that you might follow in his footsteps. This writer goes on to say, Peter underlines this with the quote, in his footsteps, an expression that's found only here in the New Testament, and that means the footprints of a human or the track of an animal. So thus, we are like a child placing foot after foot into the prints of his father in the snow. But this trail of Christ includes suffering as part of the pattern of life to which he has called us. So, growing up in my home and in my church, I went to a, I grew up in a Baptist church, somewhere along the line, whether it was intentionally taught or not, I, taught, I, I, I was taught that because I was American and I was a Christian, somehow those two ideas got merged together to develop this idea that I deserved to be wealthy I deserved to always be protected. Uh, I deserved pretty much anything I wanted. Um, and I deserved to be comfortable and that I could do what I want with my leisure time. And because I was a Christian, God would bless that. Right? I mean, that's the gospel, right? You come to Jesus and then you get everything you want. Isn't that, what we, isn't that the gospel? No, that's not the gospel. And hopefully you've never been taught that. But I, I think somehow... In our American Christianity, that's what we identify with. 
And so when difficult times come into our life, when all of a sudden the pattern of life isn't I'm successful and I'm unscathed from suffering and pain and hurt, we're like, well, wait a minute. I, I, didn't, think this is, I didn't think this is what I was signing up for. How many of you, raise your hand, feel like you've suffered at times in your life? Just raise your hand if you've ever felt like, man, there's been heartache in my life. Okay, I want you to stop and think for just a moment. And uh, I, this is important that you do this if you do this exercise with me because it's going to set the precedent for the rest of the message. I want you to get the time in your life where you felt like you have suffered unjustly. And I want you to try to get in contact with the emotions that you went through during that season of life. I'll stop and do that for myself here. Okay, now I'm angry. In all honesty, I'm instantly angry. I'm frustrated because it's not right. It's not fair. I didn't do anything to deserve that. I want you to connect with that frustration this morning because it's in that place that, that Peter has a word for us this morning. In my misunderstanding of what it meant to be an American Christian, what I've realized in my young and or old 41 years of living, second service, I'll seem older because there will be a bunch of young people up here. To most of you, you're like, you're just a young kid. Well, thank you, I appreciate that. But what I've learned, man, the older I'm getting, the more I realize God has not promised me that I'll make it through this world unscathed, physically, emotionally, spiritually, that I will be hurt. And I will be hurt by people who have evil intentions. And I will sometimes have done nothing to bring that upon myself. And at that point, I have a decision to make. I can say, I'm going to fight to defend myself, or I'm going to take this to the Lord. So, Keep that time of suffering in your life. Maybe it's going on right now for you. Maybe you're in the, the midst of a season where you are ready to throw in the, the towel or maybe you're in the midst of a season where, where you are fighting and you're trying to defend yourself, man. You're trying to work your way through it. Keep that fresh in your heart and your mind. Peter gives us a very specific example found in Christ as to what do we do when we find ourselves in that situation. How do we respond to unjust suffering, hurt, and pain? Well, I think there's four things that we can take away from this text and uh, another, another text we're going to look at here that Peter refers to in chapter 2, verse 21. So let's look at verse 21 through 23 again. I'm going to read that again. For to you, excuse me, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So I think the first thing that Jesus did is he chose and demonstrated the disposition of humility. Go to the book of Philippians just for a moment with me. Go to Philippians chapter 2. It's a very well-known passage of Scripture. Um, but to me, it's always worth uh, the time it takes to look 
in detail at the example that Christ gives us in Philippians. So in this passage, Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the church and he's trying to get them to understand how he wants them to act towards one another. He's trying to get them to understand, I want you to have a heart of oneness, the same love, the same purpose, the same mind. I want you to get what it means to be unified, to move in the same direction as one continuous, smooth body of believers. So let's read in um, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 5 or 6. It says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and uh, sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to the interest, uh, excuse me, your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which, which is in Christ Jesus. And this is what he says. This is the mind of Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We read this and uh, many of us have grown up in church and we understand what Jesus did. We cognitively, intellectually get what he did. Uh, but it's like that idea of uh, we're so familiar with it we lose the reality of what it really means. So you're telling me the God of all creation left his throne room and became this. Now I know this looks good, right? Yeah. I'm just teasing. I mean, seriously, it does look good. But even the best of us, the best physical exterior, Come on, man. That's humiliating. That's humiliating that the king of the universe would subject himself to the limitations of a body. Ken and Leesman, we played basketball together this last Wednesday. And he asked me this morning, he says, how is your butt? It's probably not a pulpit-appropriate word. Your backside. So I got knocked down playing basketball. And at 41, when you get knocked down, it hurts a lot more than when you're 25. And unfortunately, only one portion of my body took the entire blow, and it was this portion right here, which there's not a lot to absorb. So I'm in a lot of pain. Man, I am physically limited. I'm weak. I get sick. I've been sick for a week now, man, sniffling. You're probably going to hear it through the mic this morning. Like, I'm a pretty powerless human being. And the God of the universe came down and humiliated himself for me, for you, and took on the weakness of the human form. So how did Jesus demonstrate humility? There's really three specific things here. Number one, he gave up his right to be right. He gave up his right to be right. It says he didn't consider equality with God something to grab onto. 
something to hang on to, even though it was his. By right, it was his. He gave it up. How often are we willing to give up our right to be right in the midst of unjust, unfair treatment? When we're suffering and we feel we've done nothing to deserve it, are we willing to let go of our right to be right? Because doggone it, we're Americans. And we are always right. America, right? Seriously, though, I mean, that is the mantra of people in this country. We're the superpower, man. Capitalism. Freedom. The right to be right. The opportunity for you and I to suffer is ever abounding. And when you're in the midst of that, really the right to be right doesn't accomplish anything for you. To be angry and to be upset doesn't accomplish anything for you. Jesus didn't stand before Pilate and wave his finger. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I can do? In Isaiah 53, 7, it says he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and he remained silent. And of all people that have ever walked the face of this earth, did Jesus not have the right to be right? How else did he demonstrate his humility? 2 Corinthians 5, you don't have to turn there, you can reference it and look at it later if you'd like, but 2 Corinthians 5 teaches us that Jesus initiated reconciliation. So often when we're hurt, when someone has done something intentional to us, we have outlined how they have hurt us, we have outlined what they need to do in order to unhurt us. Jesus was the one that was offended. We live in a culture of offense, don't we? You don't have to peruse through Facebook very long to either yourself be offended or easily offend someone else. I mean, that is like the new cool trend today. Be offended. Why? Because everyone's doing it, and it's cool. It's ridiculous, honestly. We're so easily offended by the most trivial of things. Man, did Jesus not have the right to be offended more than anyone else? He was offended first. We offended first. Yet he took the first step towards reconciliation. He moved towards you and I to make things right. That's humility. Are you, in your current situation of suffering, or you think about that scenario, that season of life, are you willing to make that first step? In humility, are you willing to go and move towards reconciliation, even though you know, man, I didn't do anything wrong in this one. I know this one I'm innocent of. Are you still willing, though, to say, but this was the example of Christ, the pattern that Jesus has left for us? Well, I'll move forward to initiate reconciliation. The third thing, the third thing that we look at that demonstrates his disposition of humility is that Jesus operated based on the needs of others rather than himself. Mark 10.45 tells us that, that he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve 
to give his life as a ransom for many? I think this is what Jesus did. I think he chose to look past the hurt and see the soul needs of other people. How often are you and I willing to do that? I'm, t- I'm just telling you, man, like I could speak all day and I won't about this subject. There have been times in my life where I have been so hurt by people, so deeply cut, that it's like impossible to look past what they have done to you. And then and go beyond that, ignore that, and say, but what are their needs? That is not normal. That's not in us, in and of ourselves. That's not in us to do this. That's why Peter says, follow this example. Trace those letters. Learn this pattern. And it takes a willful decision to get your paper out, get your pencil out, and trace the pattern of learning to endure through suffering. You are not going to do it by chance or accident. But this I can guarantee you, you will suffer unjustly. Scripture makes it very clear all through, particularly the New Testament, if we're going to follow Christ, life is going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. It's going to be unfair. And it's the normative process of being an alien in a broken world. So we have a decision to make. We can either choose in obedience to follow this pattern and learn this pattern and learn what it means to implement these ideas and willfully choose and get on our knees and say, Lord, help me to choose this every day. Or we can be miserable the rest of our life. We can hold other people in this little prison and we can drink the bitterness all day long and have a miserable existence. But if you call yourself a believer and you've died in your sin as Christ died for our sins and was raised back to life and he's raised you to a new life, you're not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to hang on to those things. He's called us to something better. So if you feel like you're at a place this morning where you're suffering or you're hurting unjustly at the hands of others and it seems like it's not getting any better, have you started here? Have you started at humility? This is hard to do, but it's something you have to willfully do. Have you asked God to strip you of your pride? Well, I didn't do anything wrong in this situation. They were wrong. Have you asked God to strip you of your pride? Have you asked him to strip you of your anger, of your bitterness, so that you can see those who have have offended you the way Jesus Christ saw us. I'm telling you, this is, those of you that have gone through these seasons of life and you've come out on the other side, man, it's like the hardest thing to do, to let that stuff go. But uh, it was the character of Christ. It was the disposition of Christ to put on humility and to choose to walk in humility. Secondly, what was the second example? What did Christ do in this pattern that he left for us that he asked us to do? Isaiah 53, 7, I've already alluded to, but it says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, yet he did not speak, he did not open his mouth. So secondly, what did Jesus do? He closed his mouth. 
Don't you wish sometimes your spouse would close their mouth? Or your children, just close your mouth. Just be quiet. Just listen. But this message isn't for your spouse or for your children. It's for you, and it's for me. So as much as we want them to close their mouth, this is for us. What do we do when we are at the hands of someone that's causing pain to us, speaking maliciously about us, um, treating us like garbage? Well, this is what we typically do. First of all, we typically defend ourselves. Why? Because we want to win. I'm going to win this argument. I will win. How many of you ever have that mentality in your mind? Oh, you're a bunch of liars out there this morning. We need to pray for your soul. Because you're lying. You know why I know? Because you're human. Because your broken nature says, I must be first and I must win. And if someone's talking poorly about me or someone does something to me and they don't acknowledge that they did this to me, my first response is to defend and build up my fortress and then I go and I build my army. So I'm going to now go and I'm going to find those people that believe the same thing I believe about this situation and get those people on my side and particularly those people that may already have a beef with that person anyways and I'm going to draw up lines of battle and defend. And the way we do that is by opening our mouth and by trashing the character of the other person because they offended us, because they hurt us, because they're doing something that seems unjust and unfair. And so therefore, apparently, we have the right to disparage their reputation and paint them with a giant black brush. Unworthy. You've hurt me, so now you're unworthy. And I will forever disparage your name. I'm just telling you, man, like, I've been there. I've been on both sides of it, where I feel like that's happening to me, and, and the temptation to do that to others. So, I know this is resonating with some of you, because some of you are in it. Some of you are standing there with your hands innocent. Man, I don't know why they're treating me like this. I don't know why they're acting like this. I don't know why they're saying the things that they're saying, I just want to defend myself. And if I can just defend myself and I can win this argument logically, through logic, because logic prevails everything, right? Don't talk to my wife about that. She hates it when I say, well, this is the logical solution, dear. Like, I have cornered the market on logic and now I'm just, you know, putting it out there, making $9.95 for every package of logic I send out. It doesn't fly with her. So we defend ourselves. What else do we do? We fight for our right because we deserve it. I'm not just going to lay back and let someone rip me apart. Man, I'm going to engage. I'm going to jump up and get into battle. And I'm going to wield the power that I have to win this argument. And of course, the third thing that we do is we seek revenge or vindication which means we will get justice at all cost. doesn't matter how many people we have to run over. It doesn't matter uh, how much we have to tear down their character. Even if we have to bend the truth a little bit about them, man, we're not going to let them talk about us like that. Did, did Jesus not have the right to do all of these things? He stood there 
being accused, being slandered, being physically beaten and tormented. And yet he kept his mouth closed. He didn't fight. He didn't defend. He didn't seek vindication. What was his response? Verses 23, let's read it again. I know we've, we've read it a number of times, but after all, it is the word of God that shapes us and molds us, so maybe by the end of today you'll have memorized verses 22 and 23 because we've read it so much. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So what did he do? Well, he did not retaliate, which means he didn't build a defense against those who were mistreating him unjustly. He didn't say, well, yeah, but you did this to me, that's why I did that. Well, yeah, but you don't know all the circumstances. Let me just, Pilate, hold on, Pilate, let me explain. He didn't say a word. He didn't say anything. That is not in our nature, to not say anything, especially some of us more than others. Some of us really like to talk our way out of things. He didn't make any threats. He didn't say, you know, Pilate, you know who I am, right? Like, you do realize I could call a legion of angels right here and, and smite thee if I wanted. And he certainly did not revile, which means to criticize in an abusive or angry manner. He didn't come after Pilate and rip him apart, rip his character apart, tell him what a horrible leader he is. He kept his mouth closed. So why is it so difficult for you and I to keep our mouth closed? And that's a sermon in itself, right? It is difficult for us though, right? It's super, super hard when we are being mistreated unjustly to keep our mouth closed. Jesus did it. Man, how did you do that, Jesus? Why can't we do that? And I would say it's because of our pride. Our pride is what causes us to open our mouth. Pride is like this, uh, you're not going to like this example, and some of you parents are going to be like, are you kidding me? Did you have to say that today? But pride is like when you get the flu, and it's just got to come out. It's just got to come out. When you get that lump of pride in your throat, your gag reflex kicks in, and you have no other alternative, but just to throw it out, puke it up. That's what pride is like. That's why the expression is, swallow your pride. Swallow it, get rid of it, set it aside. Because if you don't, the alternative is, you are instinctively slave to your broken nature. To And when you open your mouth, that's what comes out. Pride, defending yourself trying to make sure you win, disparaging other people's character, even bending the truth for the sake of winning. That's why Jesus didn't open his mouth because he didn't have any pride in him. He was right on, man. He understood there was a greater purpose. We're going to get to that in just a moment. So are you, are you practicing keeping your mouth closed in the midst of that season of suffering unjustly. I think the other reason why Jesus 
was able to keep his mouth closed is because Jesus had already chosen to subject himself to the will of the Father. Uh, he, he didn't come into this blind. He wasn't like shell-shocked about the accusations. He knew he was walking in step with his Father. And he had already decided, I will only do what the Father commands me to do. I will walk in step with what the Father commands me to do. And so he didn't have to defend himself. He didn't have to fight back. He decided just to do what the Father asked him to do. And what the Father asked him to do was take it. Jesus, I'm going to ask you to take it. And as you're taking it, I'm going to ask you to trust in the perfection of my character. That's what Jesus is asking you and I to do when we face unjust suffering. He's asking us to endure it, to endure it and know that I am good and trust that I am good through this. Third, what did Jesus do? What is the example he left for us? Luke 23, 34 says that Jesus forgave them. He says, Father, forgive them because they don't understand what they're doing. Isaiah 53, 12, as Peter alludes to some of this, it says that yet he bore the sins of many and he made intercession for the sinners. He prayed on behalf of us, the ones who offended him. And he offered forgiveness. Imagine with me this scene. Jesus is up on the cross. Picture this in your mind. He's on the cross. And this is what he looks down to. He sees over here Roman soldiers gambling for his clothes. On either side of him are criminals who were making fun of him, who were reviling him, ripping on his reputation. In another corner, he, has, he sees the religious leaders who are mocking him in their snub, nice, clean garments. They think that they are holier than thou. Look at that fool up there. This is what Jesus is looking down upon. And then, of course, we have the mass crowd who's just simply blaspheming him, who's saying, crucify him, get rid of him. He's no good. He's a liar. He's an imposter. He's a fake. Kill him. So this is the scene that we come upon, and Jesus says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Man, alive. How could Jesus experience so much pain unjustly? How could he forgive such a wretched group of people? How could he do that? Well, first of all, I think, uh, I think one of the reasons why he could do that was because he genuinely viewed the people that have offended him and hurt him with compassion. He actually had compassion upon them. And he poured mercy out on them. Man, do you have compassion for those who are hurting you? Like, I'm just telling you, that's a hard, hard thing to have. To genuinely have compassion for those who are intentionally trying to destroy your life. Or at least that's what it feels like in the midst of suffering. Secondly, Jesus knew there was no other way. 
The Father had called him to do this because there was no other way to restore the broken relationship between God and man. And third, the reason why Jesus could do this is because Jesus loved his Father more than anyone else. That sounds weird. But the reason why he could view broken people who hurt him so drastically was because he loved his Father more than anyone else. And he wanted to be obedient to the will of the Father. Do you love the Father more than anything else? To the point where you'll be obedient to forgive those who are hurting you. How can you and I forgive? Because Christ did. Not just those people 2,000 plus years ago that were at Golgotha, the hill, right here. He forgave you and I. As our sins were not counted against us because of Christ's blood, death, and resurrection. He forgave us, man. So how do I have the right to hang on to whatever it is that I feel like is ripping my life apart, that this person has done to me? I don't have the right. And in view of what Christ suffered and what he forgave me of, my only response is to forgive, to let it go. Well, finally, the fourth thing that Jesus did, it says in the end of verse 23, it says he didn't threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Jesus chose to let God deal with those who had offended him. But specifically, he said, I'm going to entrust myself to you, Father. This idea of entrust means that he put himself under the care and the protection of the Father. So what does this mean specifically for Jesus? Well, he did not put his hope in the approval of men. Jesus knew what was in the heart of mankind. So he didn't trust himself to mankind because he knew he'd always be left disappointed by mankind. Secondly, he sought refuge and comfort in the Father alone. The only place he could find true healing and true comfort was from his Father. And third, Jesus trusted in the eternal plan of the Father. God must have a plan that has my best interest in mind. How does this translate for you and I? What does it mean for you and I to entrust ourselves to God alone? Number one, my confidence can't be found in whether I have the approval of particular people in my life. I cannot live my life hoping that I appease certain people, hoping that I belong to this certain group, that I find a level of satisfaction in this group, this identity in these people. Because most likely I'm going to be disappointed. Most likely I'm going to be brokenhearted. And if I try to find my hope in my identity in this group or this particular relationship even, then I've misplaced where I put all my hope, which is to be in the Father, as Jesus did. So I entrust myself to one person and one person alone, the Father. How do I get through unjust suffering? I recognize, God, you're the only one I can truly give myself to. You're the only one that I can truly find comfort in. I can truly endure and make it through this because of you.
So as I walk through my hurt and pain, I'll only find healing and comfort in the Spirit and in the truth of His Word. We underestimate the reality that God and His Holy Spirit wants to speak to us first and foremost through this. And so often when we are suffering, suffering, so often when we are confused and we're frustrated and we feel like, well, maybe God has abandoned me, that's why He's allowing me to go through these things, we shelf the very voice that He has waiting for us to hear right here. He wants to speak to us and remind us that we belong to him and that we find our hope in him through his word. And finally, how do I entrust myself to him? I will choose to believe that he's doing something that I don't understand, but that I know I can trust in. Uh, so often the things that you're going through, you're, you're trying to figure out how does this have a plan? How does this have a purpose? And in the season of suffering unjustly, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But that's why God is telling us to endure. Follow this pattern. Trust me. I am doing something you don't understand. As we close, I just want you to consider this. If you're going through a period of suffering right now, rather than asking God to take it away or make it end, have you stopped to consider that perhaps he is wanting to use this to accomplish something great in you and through your life? Philippians 1.27 says, For it has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict with which you saw and now see to be in me. So a couple things to ask yourself. How does this suffering impact my network and the people who don't know Christ? So the people that you're engaged with in your life, in work, in family, your social circles, those who don't know Christ, how might maybe this suffering you're going through potentially be used to show the glory of God in your life. That's a very intentional way of looking at the things that you're going through. Or how does this suffering impact those who do know Christ and who are watching me go through it? So, your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you may not even know what's going on in their life behind closed doors. And here you feel like you're all alone, and here you feel like, your world is crumbling all around you and nobody cares about you and no one understands the depth of your pain and the depth of your frustration. But yet choosing to be faithful, choosing to persevere, choosing to entrust in the goodness of the Father, as you do that, the impact that God has set out in front of you to have on those around you, we, we can't even begin to understand what that looks like. And I... I got a phone call a couple weeks ago from someone who said, man, you're the only person I can talk to right now because I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you understand what I'm going through. And uh, this person says, I know it because I walked through it with you. And this person was just broken. They're broken beside themselves. And they said, how did you deal with this situation of unjust suffering? How did you deal with forgiving these people, forgiving this situation. And uh, this is really before I even started kind of working through the, the content of what this message was going to be about. And I'm like, well, Lord, you're hilarious. Isn't that funny? Yeah, man. I, I said, dude, you got to let God heal your heart. <laughs> it's not a magic formula. It's God has asked us to follow the example of Christ. And he's asked us to walk through dark days to get to the fruit 
of healing and comfort and peace that only he can provide. But you cannot get there if you're not willing to walk faithfully through the darkness. You cannot cut corners on that. You can't just hide. You can't just try to win. You can't try to jump over it or go around it. You have to be willing to allow God to take you through it. And guess what? Here's the real encouraging part of this message. It's going to be the normative operation of the human existence. Suffering is going to be more normal than rare because Jesus said it's going to be. So as you, um, as you leave here today, I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you're walking through this season or not. I don't know if it's something that you uh, are kicking and screaming through or if you've already started this process and you said, man, I am really uh, diligently trying to pray through this and trying to work through this. Uh, but my encouragement this morning is if you haven't sub- uh, submitted yourself to Christ through this and you haven't been willing to follow this pattern, this is your opportunity this morning to start to bend your knee, to bend your heart, and say, Lord, what does it mean for me to endure through this? How do I even possibly, even maybe, take joy uh, in the midst of this situation? Let's uh, close with a word of prayer.